Yo, 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 what's up, fam? We are back. It's Actual Eye Podcast, and it's Meaning Making 101, our special series covering John Berbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we are covering episode 34 on sacredness, horror, music, and the symbol. This is a cool episode. These episodes keep getting better and better and better, and uh, we're very excited to have you joining us on this learning journey. Mr. DJ is going to help us go over the previous episode while I get things running here. Yeah, so uh, let's see where to start. Okay, so we learned about problem solving, insight, categorization, dens- demonstrative reference, consciousness, working memory, um, inference, communication, and these are all things that are going into relevance realization you know this little chart that he uses over and over again um which then uh we we get emergent functions out of that like the complexification of self-transcendence um self-deception so bullshitting yourself um can come out of relevance realization Yep, yep. And what's up, Facebook? We just went live on Facebook. Welcome to the show, guys. We're just reviewing our previous episode. Thank you for joining. Um, So, yeah, self-deception, connectedness, like connected to other people and other things, like a deep connectedness to them. We have uh, perspectival knowing as an emergent function, participatory knowing, procedural knowing, um, caring significance, altered states of consciousness, and higher states of consciousness. These are all the emergent functions that we're getting out of RR. Um, Briefly talked about, uh, what is it, fundamental framing. Okay, let's see. RR is in relevance realization. Yes, yeah, because I'm not going to keep saying relevance realization. Yeah, so whenever we say RR, that's what that means. Um, So relevance realization, or RR, is... um, comes before everything else and after everything else so it's pre-conceptual pre-propositional pre-inferential before communication uh and before you experience as well so pre-experiential because in order to say like you can't be taught relevance realization by somebody you can be helped along the way of course but it's not something that is a um you know a taught uh function oh boy yeah sorry my brain's not doing too good today i'm quitting smoking and i've been in the sun all day so i'm like (laughs) good for you brother that's a big one that's a hard one for has been encouraging the heck out of us we are making those life changes, man. Yeah, so basically we have um, yeah, two sides to our chart. The the prerequisites and then the emergent functions. Uh, and then there's some messiness because everything's self-informing and self-building you know, building back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and all that jazz. We talked about Acosta and I think the the book joys of secularism uh, where he discussed this uh, wonder is central into what matters 
Um, and then there's this term bubble of meaning, meaning, is that meaningness or meaningfulness or an Africa or a, a atmosphere of significance, uh, rhythm of breathing. So the rhythm of breathe, breathing specifically is, you know, like you can see what your brain is doing when it's, um, going under compression and then it's particularizing and then compressing again and particularizing. It's, Ooh, I remember this, um, so you're on to the particularization. Acosta. Uh, Acosta. Joys okay. of secularism. Here we are. I found you. Wonder is central to our experience of reality. The very ordinary fact that things always, quote unquote, matter to us. We cannot help but relate as though everything is meaningful. We're immersed in an atmosphere of significance. This is what our relevance realization is doing for us. We're absorbed by, you're saying, the rhythm of breathing, the assimilation, and the congregation. The experience of having a world has relationship or has relation with a bubble of significance, such as atmosphere of Earth. Yeah, oh, and you're not yeah. you're not having, um, like say, like um, having a world as a focal object. It's being in it as much as you are participating in this atmosphere by breathing it in and breathing it out. There we go. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, this creates a primordial ground that grants a sense of in and out. So transjectivity, transjectivity, sorry, pre-object and pre-subject. Yeah. We're recognizing that wonder and awe as well as absurdity and horror are transjective. They're deeper than our sense of the objective or even the subjective. They come before. Wonder is that state in which we become aware of the significance of our involvement, commitment to this atmosphere of relevance realization that we're taking part in. So Costin is invoking the spiritual way we live within, move, and have our being. So here, Verveke is trying to describe, through secular language, a sense of the sacred or a sense of spiritual experience that we hear so much of in the theistic world. And he's doing so because we're trying to prove the worthwhileness of mindfulness practices, of altered states and higher states of consciousness, and helping human beings attune to their environments. Uh, so we're introduced to a word, religio. Oh yeah. Just to, to bind together in a pre, uh, it's like a pre-egoic binding that grounds uh, the self in the world, mm-hmm. or grounds the self and the world. <laughs> um, Fuller, who wrote the book called Wonder, on Wonder, yeah. um, argues wonder is responsible for. Um, religio by the deepest experiences we can have yeah yeah explain um he does this by explaining the functioning of wonder mm-hmm. um so wonder is awe you know uh which is a being mode function Overlaps with awe. yeah it's definitely in the being mode and a, a um so and it has a scaling up function too where um mm-hmm. you know we, he gets into curiosity which is in the having mode you curiosity is manipulative and like, what is that? I want to figure that out. I want to get into that. I want to, you know, muss around with that. Whereas Oz just like, 
where wonders open opens you up uh and the point of wonder is to get us into the gestalt state seeing everything all together you know like what are the things that you experience wonder from well when you're on like you know when you're on a precipice and you're seeing like you know say maybe like the huge horizon or mm-hmm. something like Beautiful that you mountain know that. range and then you're trying to pick it all together and then when you're curious you're looking at the paths to try to get down into it or getting whatever, more into the know. particulars aren't yeah you? so yeah so the point of wonder is to participate in the gestalt the yeah. whole the inexhaustibleness and ongoing adaptability of our relevance realization to that explosive sense of reality. So the relevance realization, RR, it's about sati, which is remembering by being hmm. in touch with the religio. So we have the word da'ath, the sense of co-creating with the world, not as a story, but as something deeper. It can be mm. talked about kind of in story terms, but it is something deeper. So I guess he's saying um, religio comes from the, what you would say is the right-hand uh, side of this chart he's been using, but the emergent side, but mm-hmm. it's dependent upon the prerequisite side. That's right. Um, yes. As well. And and if you look at the previous episode, you'll see the chart that he's drawing up on the whiteboard as he does this. So we're seeing all the neurological properties that mm-hmm. play into relevance realization yeah so awe and wonder are accommodations being mode sati mm-hmm. confronting a mystery and mm-hmm. in this case a phenomenological mystery um yes Verveke talked about opening of framing so like the idea is you you know you have a framing and then um you have insight what is that insight, sensibility, transcendence, <laughs> trans trajectory of transcendence, of transframing? Man, he, he gets a trajectory me with, of transframing. Yes, thank you, man. He gets me with these words, man. Um, he he's so pinpoint with his language. And so, like the opening of framing, imagine one frame, put a frame around that, put a frame around that, and the action and movement of framing out. Yeah, so it's like what happens is we frame a problem. But then we have an insight, and so we create a new yeah. frame. But then we have another insight, and that creates a more encompassing frame. Yeah. And that goes on and on and on. It's, uh, it's impossible to perspectively have a framing of one's own death. Yeah. But we can make a perspectival, a perspectival frame of relevance realization. So we have that opening up to insight as we're reframing. It's not an insight just about a problem, but it's also an insight into our own misframing. So it's like both at once. And that is, yeah, that's the trajectory of transframing. So it's like we're continually transcending our initial frames and reinforming ourselves and how we mistakenly got to the previous frame we're even seeing. And so we create a new frame that helps us to grip onto reality more optimally. And we find flow deeply meaningful. So we, we know this is like deeply built into our biology. I and me are aspects that we can bring into view. Isn't that interesting that we can bring our sense of I or the sense of me into view? But whatever generates that sense of I and me, we can't see. Just like you can't see the I by means of your own eye. You can't, you know. Yeah, you can't look at, well, 
Without mirrors or other Without such things, mirror, you yeah. can't directly look yeah. at your own eye. We're always seeing through the eye of the me from frame to frame. So relevance realization grounds and makes possible objective and subjectivity. But in the first we, place, we're stuck using the language of or the grammar of ob objective and subjective, even That's though right. it's not objective or subjective because it's pre objective and pre subjective. Yes. Because in order to realize the object, you have to have a realize, you have to go through RR. Yeah, you have to go through the relevance realization. So it's like we can't quite use conceptual categories to talk about this we can point at it though and the words are the best that we've yeah. got I, I love the sense that transjective is beyond objective and subjective it's before it's beyond it transcends so we're trying to understand the difference between the different kinds of knowing that humans have in our human awareness and how we can and can't bridge between these different kinds of knowing the perspectival the participatory and so on mm -hmm. mystery itself opens up an affordance for perspectival wonder and awe experiences so we can get into a transjective trajectory and experience flow in religious practice or by celebrating and enacting religio itself yeah uh, re regardless of whether it's actually religious or secular so that's right it's good for us regardless yeah, it, what's miss is so what's missing here is a clear way to confront the sacred mm-hmm and so yeah so the different and the, yeah, so what's missing in religio versus religion is the sacred. Ah, uh, yeah. Because yeah. um, you have the sacred, which is a metaphysical proposal that mm -hmm. that uh, the proposal is there's something supernatural yes. about it. That's right. Um, and there's an ongoing theological debate about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whereas sacredness is a psycho-existential proposal. Mm -hmm. What's um, it like to experience the sacred yeah. is what sacredness is interested yes. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. so I guess it was Schlermacher, Schlermacher, mm -hmm. Schlermacher, um, yeah, yeah, uh, decided to leave behind the sacred as far as the metaphysical proposal and the, the, you know, or the, you know, the supernatural thing and go towards the sacredness, mm -hmm. um, when trying to figure this, uh, this whole thing out yeah because we're trying to understand okay so what is this existential sense this being mode through which we can experience sacredness what is the psychological and cognitive processing the embodiment and the embeddedness of religio that allows this to be possible for us what is real relevance realization doing why is it allowing us to experience sacredness how the world because sacredness we do find it homes us mm. it homes the world and us together and that's in contrast to a sense of domicide a sense of deep loneliness that comes from cultural shock and a sense of homelessness a loss of the sense of the sacred and we're experiencing so much domicide in our world today mm -hmm. uh, you know we're all feeling increasingly destabilized by all of the rampant ongoing division and cultural chaos and seeming civilizational breakdown so this does cause deep loneliness and a deep sense of meaninglessness and where's the sense of home everyone's looking for it and fortunately there's a countercurrent of 
people finding home in beautiful ways that are sharing it with the world again. And so we're seeing this upsurge and this downward spiral happening at once, this yin and the yang play as the human beings calibrate to this new realization. So we know sacredness, the sense of the sacred protects us from domicide, homes us against horror. It seems to be one of the functions of the sacred according to uh, Gertz. Mm -hmm. And Gertz also um, said that religion isn't a set of meanings, I think, if I'm getting this right, but a but a set of meta meanings. That's right. Um, and uh, I'm having a hard yeah, time. Yeah, the sacred is meta meaningful. It's uh, it's dependent on the transjective relationship of the agent and arena. So it's it's dependent on the individual finding a way to work out a sense of meta meaning making. This homes us against alienation, absurdity, and anxiety. And uh, we, you know, we recognize that there is serious play with sacredness, uh, we, and rituals and communal um, worship and things like that. We reli- re- reliably find that religio protects people against the sense of domicile, and meaning. We often find it in spiritual communities and this does allow for us to increase our worldview attunement a lot which basically means that we are tuning ourselves into a better more calibrated relationship with reality and again in this process it's all dependent on that transjective relation that reciprocal realization that we're having with reality this co-creative dance that we can get into in reality that we're engaging on a deeper level that is both before and transcends our normal, I guess you could say normal, um, or other modes of interacting with our environments, more separate sense of reality, you could say. So Gnosticism, we remember, was trying to awaken us to mystery and the primordiality of the sacred. Primordiality. It's it's the... I guess I say primordiality, but he go. says primordiality. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a Canadian thing or if that's the way you're supposed to say it or if it's e- just easier to say it that way opposed to primordiality. It sounds like it might just be easier, <laughs> right? Because we do that with a lot of words in yeah. English. We throw that little jut in there, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so it's also trying to overturn our grammar of a worldview in a transgressive sense. So the approach of trying to awaken us to mystery and the primordiality of the sacred, which means that it's primordial, it's existed always, far before everything. So the experience of the numinous, we get into auto here at this point, the numinous rather than holy. Yeah. Because the numinous describes that primordial experience from its most fundamental transgressive level, whereas holy is pointing more towards well, holy traditionally. Could, holy could be talking about your health. health. It could be talking about like the glory of God. It could be talking about moral righteousness. Moral righteousness. It could talk be talking about there's you know divots in a field, mm-hmm. holy field. So we use the word numinous here yeah. because it's it's more targeted. 
and it's also a more secular use of the term, so you can talk about this scientifically as well. And this, that's what Verveke is trying to do here, is help us bridge the gap between the sacred, sense of the sacred and science, which broke apart like 2,000 years ago, and that has been degrading ever since, that relationship that science and spirituality used to have. Well, I don't think it was 2,000 years ago. I would have to say probably like the Black Death, because for a long time, you know, the place where scientists were, were where religion was, you know, your monasteries and your stuff like that. And then, well, Martin Luther came along and was like, screw that, tear down all the monasteries. We are really separating That's this. certainly where it really started to ramp up. Braveke takes us far back yeah. in history and he starts showing us little clues and points to where things started to change and pull apart. But DJ's right, it really started to become super apparent uh, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, even. So uh, so here we are. I think that catches us up on the previous episode. That's all the notes I have. Yep, that's all my notes. Sweet. All right, fam. Hope you all are ready for another deeply profound episode of John Bravake's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We're about to jump into it here. And uh, we encourage you guys to like and subscribe if you enjoy what we're doing here. We're just trying to share this knowledge with more people. It's helped us tremendously. And so go on and share it with others if you like. And also give John Verveke a like and subscribe and check out his channel because there's so much more going on that comes after this Awakening series. All right, so here we are. We jump in. Let's go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time I tried to develop with you the right side of the plausibility argument I'm making and try to give an account of central features of human spirituality and to try not use that term therefore in a vague, um, indefinite way. And an, I made an argument for how relevance realization can explain many of the facets that are found within the normal attribution of uh, human spirituality. And I proposed a term, uh, religio, uh, to cover all of those aspects uh, of spirituality that can be explained by the machinery of relevance realization. There was, of course, an important lacuna. There was something that was still missing from that account. Um, and this was the uh, account of the sacred. And then I proposed to you, in order to avoid confusion, especially uh, post-Schleiermacher, that we should make a distinction between the metaphysical proposal of, of the ground or the cause of the experience of sacredness, where Schleiermacher is emphasizing the experience. And then, uh, for reasons uh, of the way my argument has unfolded, uh, since I'm talking about the psycho-existential uh, machinery of sacredness as opposed to the metaphysical proposal, at least initially, that is where I should uh, begin. So I'm talking now, we began to speak about um, a way of using the theoretical machinery we have developed here in order to talk about sacredness. And we began by going to uh, the work that we'd already talked about, about domicide, back to the work of Geertz, 
Now we talked about sacredness, one of the ways it functions, one of the ways we can experience it is that it functions as a meta-meaning system that affords worldview attunement and thereby homes us against horror. Uh, but then I noted that, of course, in the Hellenistic domicide, there was not only uh, the uh, machinery that uh, attempted to rehome us, like the syncretic religions, and one could probably argue also Stoicism, as I've already argued, but there was also there was an alternative response, which was the transgressive response of uh, the Gnostics, ultimately. And I then said that gives us um, an opening into another aspect of sacredness, and this is the work of Otto and his book that, as I mentioned, was typically entitled uh, The Idea of the Holy, and I said a better translation would perhaps be The Experience of the Numinous. And what Otto was proposing is that before we had a moral interpretation of holiness, there was a pre-moral um, view of what I'm calling sacredness, and this, or at least an aspect of the sacred, of sacredness, I should say. And what Otto was pointing to was the experience of the numinous, which is closely related um, to the adjective that is most applied to God, for example, in the Old Testament, which is glorious. God is shining and overwhelming and powerful, uh, but glory does not carry with it uh, any moral sense. In fact, one way uh, of interpreting what's going on in the book of Job is a contrast between some of Job's moral arguments about his suffering and God's response uh, is to present his glory and how numinous he is. And so you're seeing sort of a conflict uh, between these different aspects of holiness in Job. Of course, th that's not all that's happening in the book of Job, and perhaps when I speak of Young, we'll get back to that. <coughs> but right now, what I want to pick up on is this insight by um, Otto that a part of sacredness seems to be the experience of the numinous. And the numinous seems to be transgressive in an important way. It seems to be, in fact, it seems to be taking us into the heart of the very thing that the Geertzian model of sacredness was supposed to home us against, which is experiences that border on horror. Now, um, Otto describes this um, experience of the numinous as having th three central aspects to it. Um, it is a mystery, very much in the way I argued last time. The the sense that we got from Marcel of something that right, brings about sensibility transcendence, that sort of trajectory of transframing. Um, and then it has two opposing poles in it which make a lot of sense, uh, I, I think, given what we've, what we've built together here. One is, is that it is deeply fascinating. Um, it compels. So a good way of I think a, a very plausible way of understanding is this is super salient to you. It is really grabbing your attention, I I involving you. Uh, you can't pull away. Uh, so it's super salient. And then the other is, he said, right, it's, it's, like it's terrifying. Um, it's horrifying. It, 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 there's an aspect of horror to this. Um, now, I've got to stop for a minute. And you, um, 
I don't want to use the word terror. Uh, it goes back to his origi uh, original term. But the, the problem with terror is, of course, it has become deeply enmeshed with us with notions of terrorism. Um, and I, I want to put that aside. Um, the, uh, I'm going to use the word horror because it doesn't have that, uh, the, the, that kind of association. Uh, but I have to now uh, distance how I want to use this word from how it's become typically used uh, by us. Um, so I much mentioned to you that most mystery novels and mystery movies aren't mysterious at all. They don't have you confront mystery. They give you just a difficult problem to solve. And in that sense, they're um, instances of a kind of important modal confusion uh, that is pervasive in our culture. The same thing with many horror movies. Many horror movies do not actually expose you to horror. Many horror movies actually expose you to um, being deeply startled with fear. Okay, so deeply startled with fear. So, um, so much, much of what passes for horror movies um, are movies that prey on our sort of ancestral fear of predation. Um, so that where there's some monster that it, although the monster points towards something, and I'll come back to that, and this is work, uh, of course, made uh, by, uh, good work done by Jonathan Pajot on uh, how we should think about monsters. We'll come back to that. And the monster is basically hidden in some way or unknown, and it's preying upon people, and most of the what's called horror is how the, the surprising way in which the monster will suddenly appear and prey upon its, its victims and then they get ripped apart. So you were startled, oh no, ah, right? And, 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 that, and most of that is not horror. I mean, I imagine it has, I find those movies boring actually. Um, the, I understand why some people, I, it, this is just a statement of taste. I don't find them very interesting. Uh, the, those sort of startle and puncture movies don't, don't appeal to me. Um, and, uh, they're often enmeshed also with sort of crypto messages about sexuality and things like that that uh, need to be challenged. Putting all of that aside, right, so when I say horror, you have to, there's a few movies that capture it because horror has to do with what we talked about with respect uh, to Geertz. Horror is when your sense of contact with reality is being challenged, undermined, where you feel you have a grasp on things and then it's slipping away. So horror, therefore, is often prototypically not associated with fear or directly with fear. It's associated with insanity or madness. And of course, there is the primordial fear of becoming insane, right? Now the monster points to something very, very interesting. Um, and this goes back to the work of Mary Douglas, right? That we often find creatures that are intercategorical for us monstrous uh, because that's on a continuum with another important feature of things being intercategorical. So what is meant by intercategorical? Intercategorical are things that don't fall into our ready-made categories, and therefore we typically regard them as weird. Uh, she talks about how they're unclean. She does an interesting discussion about um, 
and in, in the Bible, the book of Leviticus, all the animals that are unclean, they're very weird. It's a very weird collection. If you tried to find some sort of essence, like wh why owls are unclean and crocodiles are unclean and, and whatever, and certain birds are unclean, and certain, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And then she goes in and argues, well, no, what happens is, is there's various ways in which categorizing, the, there's ways in which people have categorized things, and those categories, right, have a certain pattern. Um, and when that, when that pattern is being broken, um, then these things, these things challenge our grip on the world. They challenge our grip on the world. So, let, let, for example, like, there's the, the, there's the idea, uh, Douglas argues, that you should have an interconnection between uh, a creature's sort of shape, its morphology, its means of locomotion, and its location, like where it lives. So if it lives in the sea, it should swim, and therefore it should have uh, a fish shape. So you have things that are in the sea that don't seem to be swimming, like the crawly shellfish, and therefore they're kind of weird, and they turn out to be unclean. And, right, and then you also have this same, uh, she argues this same schema is applied. Now we, we think, oh, those archaic ancient people. No, but remember, don't, don't do that, because we talked about how we also have purity codes. We find things unclean that uh, thwart our system of categorization. So, right, remember, if I take this and spit into it repeatedly and then swirl it around and drink it back, you're grossed out. That's unclean to you because I have this whole structural, functional organization, a way of categorizing myself and my self's relationship to my body and how that's other than the environment and then there's important boundaries that shouldn't be, shouldn't be crossed. And when the spit comes out of me, it becomes intercategorical. It's, it's me, but it's not me because it's not inside me, but it's outside of me, but somehow it was produced. And ah, it's intercategorical, it's yucky, and get rid of it. Right? So... This is not a feature of ancient thought. This is a way in which we respond to things that violate our core categorical ways of making sense of the world. Now, some of those things we just regard as yucky or gross or unclean. But if the, the intercategorical thing is intercategorical between really, really central categories and it is represented as threatening to us, then it can, it, it, well, it originally invoked horror for us. So if you take a look at many horror creatures, they're prototypically intercategorical, right? The wolfman is intercategorical between the bestial and the personal, right? The ghost is intercategorical between the living and the dead. The vampire is also intercategorical between the living and the dead, and also between right, uh, being, al being alive in the sense of consuming and being alive in the sense of being able to be generative, because, of course, the vampires consume and do not produce. And so, and, and of course, and um, uh, there's the work that uh, Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic and I did, and Jonathan Pagel ultimately uh, uh, I, I, sorry, not ultimately, independently, not ultimately, maybe ultimately, but independently uh, 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 did work on uh, the zombie and how the zombie is an intercategorical uh, monster to represent our current situation, the meaning crisis, and you're going to see a video of Chris uh, 
Chris Messer, Pietro, and I talking about all of that, so I won't get that into detail. So the fact that the monster is intercategorical points, right, and that, and that, and that intercategoricalness can be on a spectrum from just ooh, yucky to ah, ooh, losing a grip on reality and intelligibility because of the deep connectedness between realness and intelligibility. This points, right, again, to the connection to madness, and all of this points to losing a grip, losing that contact, that comprehensive grip, losing that optimal grip on reality. So you, you can create pretty significant horror without having to do the startle and puncture moment. Um, I want to relate one to you, uh, where I've had the most, for me, the most um, prototypical and salient example of an experience of horror that had nothing to do with sort of the prototypical being uh, something jumping out of the shadow with sharp pointy bits. Um, so I was watching Kubrick's uh, The Shining. Um, many of you have probably seen it. If you haven't seen it, it of course, there's been 10,000 memes about it. It's pervasive. Um, throughout uh, popular media. And um, my own, I guess my own intellectual arrogance contributed to the aesthetics of the horror. I was watching this movie, and, I, and, and spoilers here, but this movie's been around for a long time, so I, I think it's fair game. I was watching this movie, I was watching this movie, and I'm, you know, I'm watching this character, and he seems to be going mad, the Jack Nicholson character. And that, that in and of itself is very interesting and, of course, evocative of all of this. And then I'm getting, oh, right, Stephen King, right, all right has some sort of deep criticisms of alcoholism. Um, and so this is a very extended metaphor for uh, the descent through alcoholism into madness. And, um, and, and then I sort of, I was patting myself on my back. I, I get this movie. This movie's all, it's just a symbolic way of talking about alcoholism and everything, and he's hearing voices in his head, oh, that's clear sense of madness. And I had it all well-structured, well in hand, as we say. And then there's a scene where he gets, his wife actually traps Jack Nicholson inside some sort of pantry and locks it from the outside. And then I remember sort of coming to sort of a full stop, and I'm like, well, what's gonna happen now? She's trapped him, he's locked in, that's it. And the voices are talking to him in his head. And I'm sort of dismissing that because, yeah, yeah, he's mad. He's going to talk to the voices. But so what? And the voices are sort of in his head are sort of chiding him. And, you know, what do you do? How did you let it get to this? And I'm going, yeah, yeah, you're mad and you're, you're going to spiral into insanity. Great, great and everything. And then the voices say, okay, it's time to go. And then the voices say, now we're going to let you out. And then they open the door <laughs> from the outside, the voices in his head. And a, a chill go went down my spine because I realized, oh, I'm in a much different world than I thought I was in. I thought I had this completely down. And no, no, these voices have an independent reality and there's something else going on here. Now, nothing, nothing startling was happening. All they were doing was opening the door so he could get out. But it was an absolute chill of horror going through me because Right? And that's the most profound experience of horror I've ever had in a movie, precisely because what had happened there was I went from being out here looking at all of this to, I don't know what's going on, and I was suddenly participating in his madness 
because I didn't know what was going on and I was losing a grip on the situation and there were forces at work here that I didn't understand. That's horror. Okay, that's horror. And I, I, I mean, I think there's situations that bring people into genuine horror, um, but I think it's much rarer than we realize. All right. So given that, and like I said, we will return to talk about this later, given the sense of horror as being, you know, the polar extreme of this continuum of the, the weirdness, the eeriness, the yuckiness of the intercategorical, the, the spaces in our grip on reality through which things can slip, right? We can return to this. So the numinous is super salient, there's almost something like a flow state in that we're being drawn into it. But it also has with it aspects of horror. It shakes at the structure of our worldview. Now you say, whoa, like what's an example of this? Okay, so here's an example of, or I think, where people brush up against the numinous. And it's fairly uh, widespread, so many of you will have encountered it. Um, it's one that... Um, I, I find, I, I guess, annoying because I find it dangerous. So this happens. You're driving home, and there's been an accident on the highway. And people are slowing down. It's very dangerous to slow down. Everybody knows you shouldn't slow down like that because it's dangerous to slow down. Because the chances are you're going to cause another accident, which does, in fact, frequently happen. But nevertheless, people feel compelled to slow down. They are fascinated by this because they hope to see something horrifying. Not just disgusting. They're hoping that they will see death. That they'll, they'll somehow get a confrontation with this. And that, of course, is horrifying because death has the capacity to the confrontation with the threat of death, the presence of death, has the possibility to completely uh, sever your grip on reality, literally, in fact, right? But they can't look away. But if they see something, they, they'll, they have the potential of being very unpleasantly horrified. But of course, there's something also missing in this because they can't actually see death. they can see the fact of death in the sense of the result of something or someone dying, but that won't actually put them into something we've already discussed. That won't actually get them, give them what they want, a grip on the mystery of death, the phenomenological mystery of death. And that tells you something, right? Wonder and awe have us open up to mystery, but if the mystery becomes overwhelming, if it causes us to lose any potential sense, sorry, or yes, any sense of our potential ability to get right, an insight or an understanding that typically comes with wonder, right? Awe is sort of liminal. horror, it's like, I'm, it's, I'm, it's expanding so fast, and ah, I'm getting overwhelmed so fast 
I'm being forced to accommodate so fast this is like the all absolute worst culture shock. And I'm experiencing horror. Okay. Time for a break, guys. The horror. The horror. Getting a little intense there, wasn't it? Uh, so, Otto, before, mor- uh, before moral interpretation, there was an experience of the numinous. That's right. So before we, you know, had an interpretation for our morals, there was this experience of this. Yes. Uh, not the holy, but the numinous. Yeah, there's a pre-moral um, notion of sacredness from our ancient past. And this experience of the numinous is akin to what we use the word glory for. It's close to that. So a sense of overwhelming brightness almost. That's the term. That's what the word glory mm-hmm. means in ancient Hebrew when they're referring to God. It's just this brilliant, blinding light. The glory of God. That's what the glory points to. So the numinous, it's given us, well, it's, tra- it's a transgressive, transgressive term and experience um, in particularly important ways because numinous encounters us with a mystery or the mystery. And a mystery that is so deeply fascinating that it is super salient to us in a way that grabs and holds our attention. It's almost like the dark side of flow state. It's pulling you in and grabbing you into something that kind of takes you over. So it's, this is, it, it can be, the numinous can be terrifying. There can be horrified aspects to it. And when we're talking horror, we're talking about not like just scary monsters and the fear of predation. Well, not necessarily just startling either. Not Yeah, not necessarily startling fearful things or anything like that either. Horror is when our sense of contact with, with reality is severely undermined. It's, it's like it's closer to a sense of insanity or madness. Yeah. Well, there, and there's something important to realize about the monster and why the monster why we use monsters um, and why we find them terrifying. Uh, you know, so they intercategorical and so it does not fall into pre-made categories, um, breaks down your pre-existing patterns for what should be. That's like, right. He, he brought up like a triad, which would be morphology, locomotion, and habitat, right? So mm-hmm. you got the shape of the creature, how the creature moves around in the habitat, and if you change it, any one of these things, it can make you feel uneasy. Mm-hmm. And even the shape, to, the morphology, and, or the location. Well, and, and to go, you know, not just like a, you know, monster with claws or goopiness or whatever, but even like, say, a parent. You know, what should a parent be? A parent should, you know, be um, caretaker, caretaker, protector, protector um, guide, and guardian. And if it breaks down and say you have a horrible parent that doesn't protect you but actively harms you. Sometimes you, turns into a monster unexpectedly. Yeah, and that is horror. Um, I would venture to say that's most good. people when they experience true horror is probably at the hands of somebody else becoming a monster because it, mm-hmm. because of the breakdown of one of these things well you know if, um say if it's a parent then it has that mode but say if it's a you know a lover or a, a spouse or something like that and then it breaks down because hmm. you know like say uh 
you know, finding out your spouse has been, you know, cheating on you with your brother or something like that. Yeah, right. That there you go. There is a certain amount of madness and horror that you will go through. Yeah, that it's so counter dropping, to any normal expectations yeah. you would have about reality. Yeah. So it's, it almost makes you feel insane. Yeah, so the you know, if you go or the further you go into this mismatching of the categories that should should be the more monstrous something becomes. And you can think of it like, sense. you know, visually, like if if any of y'all are familiar with Cthulhu and that whole mythos, but you know, basically he's supposed to be this before the gods ancient one, uh, you know, uh, one of the what are primordial beings of the universe and if you look upon him you immediately go mad, but you know, there's pictures of him and it's, you know, really big dude with a cephalopod head. Hmm. Which is terrifying. You know, you see this, it's like, well, a squid shouldn't have a body it, and it shouldn't be really big and it shouldn't be magical. Mm. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, like tent- tentacled creatures coming up from the depths. That's terrifying. You know, that is like, terrifying. I, things should have legs and yeah. hands and feet. Not so that mismatch <laughs> that takes it out of traditional categories. So yeah. wolf man or a ghost, which yeah, is halfway yeah. between alive and but it's not all the way gone dead it's somehow in between um mm-hmm. vampire you know mm-hmm. uh, zombies these are these things that are in between and so that's why they're they have a horrifying aspect to them yeah and, and particularly the zombie one you know zombies are terrifying because well they used to be humans now yes. they look like a human they don't function like a human they don't no. talk anymore they eat other humans, which is a no-no so, yeah, it's for like humans. They're mindless but, and they're heartless now, and they only have one mission, which is to yeah. eat other humans. Yeah, and it's strange. They should be dead. You can't kill them easily unless you chop off the head. You know, so you shoot it a bunch of times. It keeps coming at you. And depending on the Everything type of zombie, the body will happen. just keep going. You know, if yeah. it's a certain type, certain types of zombies. So yeah. it's just like so. Everything is upsetting and destabilizing the sense of normal reality. Everything is going against the rules. So this is ho- this is what horrifying is to us, yeah. and the fact that the monster is intercategorical mm-hmm. points to the madness, mm-hmm. the losing your grip on reality. Um, and yeah. you know, I, actually, his his example of the shining and how you know it's like oh well, it's a metaphor for alcoholism. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he thinks um, he's got it figured out. He sees this guy going progressively more mad as he's starting to drink more and more and more and he's like, "Okay, well, I know Stephen Keen has issues yeah. with alcoholism. He doesn't like it, so this seems to be that's what's going on in this story. I've got this figured out." And he's yeah. giving himself like the pat on the back. But the moment he's, you know, it's like, "Okay, well, how is he going to get out of this?" And Well, he gets trapped. Yeah, he and, gets trapped in a pantry. And mind you, there's nothing supernatural in this movie. It's just a man going insane. Right. And then, well, there's, you know, there's Maybe. This, there's the son who's, you know, yeah, you know, whatever. Well, well see, that's just it. Right but then now. there's something else happening that is like counter yeah. to that. That seems like, wait, there's something supernatural happening here. So what happens is Jack gets trapped in the pantry, yeah. and then the voices are like chattering to him again, and Verbeke thinks he's got it figured out and all that. But then the voices say, "Okay, we're gonna open the door now," and then the door yeah. opens. And a chill runs down Verbeke's spine because his entire ex- field of expectations has been totally upset, totally turned on its head. He doesn't understand anything now. Now he's brought now he's no longer just a watcher of the story. He's, a he's now a participant yeah. in the madness yeah. and experiencing it. 
And that's uh, that was a brilliant point of that movie. That was horrifying. Yeah. So that 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 gives you, in a nutshell, the definition of what horror, horror actually is. is. It's a very rare thing. It doesn't happen that often. The numinous is super salient and horrible. And with this explanation of what horrible it is, it's like yes, well, if you you know confront God to its face, it's going to break all your preconceptions of what you can conceive of as God. When you have mm. this experience with you know call it the divine the holy you know god whatever the the numinous it is going to break down every expectation you've ever had i try to put it as terrifyingly beautiful like more beautiful than you can stand yeah overwhelmingly not horrible in the sense of murderous of any pattern of beauty you've ever seen it's so much more than you even thought could be possible it disrupts your normal sense of reality it's overwhelming and uh and so, yeah, it's he's about to get into why the numinous can be both awesome or awful. Mm-hmm. And that word awe is going to key us into why we're talking about horror right now and why awe has a horrifying aspect to it, but mm-hmm. also has an overwhelmingly beautiful aspect to it. And his example of like, you know, the, um, you know, wreck, a wreck on the highway and everybody slows down to rubbernecks and it's trying to look, you know, it's, That's the, right, it's yeah. like watching a slow motion train wreck. You can't look away. You're riveted. And what yeah. you're riveted to is you want to see death, Good but you can't it. see death's mystery. You can only see the results of, you know, like a mangled body or super crunched That's up right. car. You don't see the mystery of yeah, death. You can't see death itself. It you almost the leaves you hollow. F- you like, you know, this hollow horror, like, cause if you see the body, you're like, Oh, but you're looking cause you want to understand death. You know, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that's a uh, something that comes from our primate end, but we tend to, you know, primates tend to, you know, everybody looks at something and it's like, if there's a snake, what is that? You know, the chimps like, will stand yeah. around and look at the snake and like point, point at it to each yeah, other and yeah. they'll go for, go on for like 10, 20 minutes sometimes watching yeah. the snake, even though it horrifies them, because this get, helps us give us a grip on the mystery of death, something that we can't understand wholly. And so anything that is about death. It does rivet us oftentimes because it, this could help us get more of a grip on this mystery of yeah. finality, this mystery of death that is a part of our lives. So uh, it's, it's something that's help us, helping us tune into our environment a little bit better, perhaps. And so we're riveted by it. I, I love that you use that word. What an interesting word, riveted, like you're riveted to, like rivets. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, the things that affix. Yeah gets a grip on you all right guys we're going to jump back in here and continue on uh i'm back at 2152 yeah, we'll go ahead and give him a little bit of a rewind here just so that we understand where we're coming from <gasps> right awe is sort of liminal but with horror it's like <gasps> i'm it's <gasps> i'm expanding so fast and ah. <gasps> I'm getting overwhelmed so fast. I'm being forced to accommodate so fast. This is like the all absolute worst culture shock. And I'm experiencing horror. So, we can think of horror is when, notice what you've got here. You've got all the indications of flow, right? or something like flow, at least the beginning of it, right? Where you, you're getting drawn in in this accelerating loop. Something like it, at least. Right? It's super salient to you. But it's, it's super salient 
and this is why I'm hesitating to just call it straight out flow. It's super salient, but not in the fact that you're deeply coupled. It's super salient in the way that you're seeking to be deeply coupled, and you're, you're, the machinery is going faster and faster, but it's not actually getting a purchase. Because what's happening is you're getting horrified by a mystery. Now it's like, wow, that's, that's an experience of the numinous? And if you read parts of the Bible, or, like, or you can read other literature too, but the Bible, of course, is prototypical for um, a lot of these people, uh, these researchers like Otto. Like, there's passages uh, in the Old Testament in which God is like this, right? There's weird and strange and horrifying aspects uh, of God. Fascinating, super salient, and you're drawn in and and it's like, like, like I say, I don't want to call it anti-flow, because anti-flow is depression, but it's like the, it's like the shadow of flow. You're, you're trying to, and you're getting drawn in, and the, all the machinery of coupling is speeding up to try and get what it can't get, which is a stable relationship. And so, wonder, it, you don't get wonder, you might not even get awe, if, if, it, if it's too much, it can pass into horror. So, it's plausible that this is one of the ways of interpreting certain even commands in the Bible, like the, you know, you're supposed to, it's often translated as you're supposed to fear God. This doesn't make any, any, any sense um, for a, a lot of reasons, uh, because God is prototypically not the object that you can run away from or fight or like what your fear would be absurd. Um, it doesn't make any sense. But I, I think a better account of this is right. You're supposed to have awe for God. And notice how this is the basis of this word awesome, but it's also the basis of this word awful, uh, right? Because it, it borders awe borders on horror. So there's a sense of the experience of sacredness that is supposed to take us to the very horizon of our intelligibility, the very, very precipice of our ability to make sense and make meaning of the world. It's supposed to take us, I would say, right, it's supposed to draw us in, and the hope is not to just throw us into horror, but to take us towards horror until we experience, right, that sort of boundary between awe and horror, where we are forced into a situation of confrontation with a demand to change, a demand to change who and what we are. And in that sense, this will overlap with the higher states of consciousness in that this carries with it a sense of being terrifically real, and I mean that, terrifically real, and that, right, it is putting a demand on us to accommodate, to expand our capacity to framing, uh, for framing that it is pushing us to our very, very, very limits. And the aspect of horror is the sense, stronger words needed here, the realization that we are indeed finally, ultimately limited, that no matter how much we grow, 
we can't grow enough to encompass the mysteries that we are confronting. So the point of the horror, I think, is to get us not only to grow, but to remember that our growth will always be the growth of a mortal, limited being, a being that is always caught up in relevance realization. So notice how I've been pushing how much this is taking you to sort of the deepest powerful accommodation, the deepest opening up, right? forcing tremendous change on you, varying who you are. This is also an aspect of the sacred. Now think about how you can relate this on the continuum that we've been talking about. This is the ultimate frame breaking. But this isn't just breaking any frame. This is, you know, this is trans frame breaking. This is breaking your capacity for framing, or at least taking it to the very, as I said, the very limits where you are forced into a trajectory of trans framing that is also acknowledging that you are ultimately insufficient. It's supposed to, in this, and I'm using this in a technical sense, it is supposed to humiliate you. The problem for us, humiliate, is that we can only hear this negatively. But, of course, humility, a deep, deep appreciation of one's inescapable limitations, is part of, I've argued, the function of horror. It is to bring you to right, that state of accommodation, while maximal accommodation, while also deeply reminding you, sati, that you can never become right, anything beyond a finite being. It's to prevent inflation. It is to prevent you ever assuming that you are more than you can ultimately be. So it's a deep kind of reminding that's put at the heart of this power. Look, if I, if I could just sort of accommodate in wonder and awe, there's a temptation that I would inflate and think, I am, right? Now this puts you, the numinous, and right, therefore puts you into contact, confrontation with something that is much greater than yourself. And also, that has an existence, by definition, independent of you, precisely because of the way it can threaten you. So notice what we've got here. We've got over here, we've got, right, worldview, we've got the sacred doing these two things, sacredness. Sorry, I keep slipping on that. <laughs> it's just the way language drives you, eh? I fear we're not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. Okay, so sacredness. Over here, we have worldview attunement. And it's very clear why, why that would be regarded as sacred. This homes us against horror. But we've got this other notion of sacredness, which is the numinous, which is designed to do the opposite. It's designed to expose us, fascinate us, Horror, with horror. So over here, we had, right, 
basically what I'm going to argue is meta-assimilation. We had that meta-meaning that is designed to get everything to fit together, to belong together. The agent and the arena fit together. But then you have the opponent process. The opponent process. And this is, as I've already argued, this is meta-accommodation. Sacredness is doing a very powerful, at, not at the level of your, even of your individual projects or problems, this is doing it at the level of your existential being in the world. It is doing higher order relevance realization. It is pushing the machinery of relevance realization, again, down through all of the levels of your knowing into your existential modes, into the depths, the primordial depths of the agent-arena relationship, and then it's blowing it apart, setting it in motion with opponent processing that's doing powerful, powerful, higher-order relevance realization. Sacredness, I think, is a deep way in which we are seriously playing with, and now the seriousness is at the level of awe and horror, and also home, which is also deeply serious to you, we are seriously playing with the machinery of relevance realization and pushing it towards greater and greater, uh, a greater and greater development of optimizing it, improving it, enhancing it. So, if that's right, if sacredness is, right, the experience of this machinery as opposed to either one of its poles, that tells us, again, about its deep functionality. That what we're doing in sacredness is we're playing with the machinery of relevance realization in order to try and create states of mind, states of body, states of interaction with the world that optimize in a comprehensive and profound manner the machinery of relevance realization, our, our connectedness to the world, to ourselves, and to each other. This, I would, for example, explain why music is so deeply associated with sacredness. I mean, <laughs> music isn't about anything, not in a conceptual referential sense. Nevertheless, as Nietzsche said, life would be a mistake without music. Because in music, we are playing just with the machinery of salience landscaping, just with all of this machinery in a powerful way for no other reason than for its own sake. We try to get into a flow state in which we are just, just for its own sake, seriously playing with this machinery. And that's why music is such a, a pivotal way in which we try to convey and represent the sacred, and why music strikes us so perspectively, 
in such a participatory way. We 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 don't just we don't we don't just think about music or right. We right. It's it is it, it insinuates its way into our perspectival salience landscape, and we embody it. The rhythms and what's happening in the music becomes sewn into our processes of co-identification. The way the world as an arena is disclosed to we, and the way my agency is being structured, are being deeply transformed by music. One of the great difficulties with our culture, of course, and I suppose we need to do work on this, um, how it contributes to the meaning crisis, is the degree to which we have trivialized music, and the degree to which we have severed it from, at least explicitly and consciously, uh, from its connection to the sacred. I think why many people still are so deeply dependent on music, especially when they're going through any transformative period in their life, is precisely because of the way it puts them back in touch and helps them remember, at least intuitively, some of this machinery of seriously playing with the higher order relevance realization machinery of sacredness. Now, that opens up something that we need to talk about because I'm now invoking how we can use something that's, and we gotta, we're going to have to do work on this, something that's symbolic like music in order to right, play, in order to activate, accentuate, and play with this machinery in a powerfully transformative manner. And of course, right, religions which are, right, uh, uh, which have these aspects to them also are rich uh, with the symbolic machinery that is designed to activate and seriously play with this. So I want, I want to talk about uh, the relationship or the role that symbols have in, in, in our experience of sacredness. We back. This hmm. stuff on music is getting really interesting. All right, so where? So mystery, fascinating and horrifying. Yes. Um, super salient and flowing, but not necessarily flowing like flow state, more of a spiraling down the shadow of flow, trying to get mm-hmm. what you, what you can't get. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're not able to get coupled with the environment quite right. You're not able to get a purchase on what's happening entirely in your mind. It's not making sense. So that's one aspect of the numinous, uh, that shadow of flow not being able to get a stable relationship with reality. Mm-hmm. If, so if there's too much, it's not wonder, it's not awe, but it's horror. And so this gives us an insight into why in the Bible we see terms like fear, God. The word, I think, that we're translating there is closer to asking us to have awe for God. Yeah, that- Awesomeness, awfulness. Yeah, there can be something can be awesome and awful. It's just beyond our capacity to conceive (laughs) entirely. So the numinous takes us to the absolute edge of our ability to reason and understand, and Mm -hmm. it demands change of us. It does, doesn't um, it? Because of the realization that we are um, ultimately limited, very limited. particularly when you come up against something that is the greatness of God. You know, you realize how extremely limited you actually are. 
Mm-hmm. Or mystery, mystery beyond our knowing, like trying to understand how the universe began. You know, so an experience of sacredness, it, it certainly can mm-hmm. be terrifically real. At the same time, take us to the precipice of our experience in a way that is right there on the boundary of awe and horror, where we do ex- also experience a demand to change who and what we are so that we can better fit to this new mm-hmm. understanding of reality. But, you know, it's not just a... But it comes with the realization that we're also limited. And, yeah. and, and it's humiliating in the best way possible. In the best way. It humbles us. Keeps your head from getting a little too big. It gives us humility. You know? That's right. Yeah. So this is like a high level of relevance realization, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. This is help. This does take our framing capacity to its very limits while also acknowledging our limits. So it not only inspires growth, it helps us know that we are also mortal. It, it humbles us. Yeah, and the numinous puts you into contact with something greater than yourself and also something that is separate from yourself that then can confront you Mm-hmm. Um, which scary enough in and of itself. Yeah, it's, no, it's no wonder that, you know, in the past humans have created very monstrous depictions of gods, you know, mm, uh, yeah, very like strange Kali. and, yeah. you know. Um, Warlike or thunderous. Or, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that if you don't do things right, they're going to they're going to squish you. Right. <laughs> so, so sacredness a- is the combination of worldview attunement and the numinous mm-hmm. or not the combination, but the, the opponent process between the two, one that homes us. And then one that exposes us to humiliation and horror, but in the best mm-hmm. way, you know, that, it sounds really negative when you say it like that, but like, but it's know, helping us calibrate something that brings you to the very edge, but then brings you home, brings you to the edge, but then brings you home. That's sacredness. That, that's a really good way to say it. I like that. It's it's like this deep sense of hum, humbling recognition um, and sati remembrance. So it's a deep recognition of our limits that prevents inflation yeah. of our egos from yeah. thinking that we are more than we can be in an unrealistic way. Like somebody that is about to jump off the top of a building thinking they can fly if they will it. What a horrifying experience if you saw yeah. someone do such a thing. Because that, of course, isn't going to work, brother. And we'd be horrified to see someone try it. So, so here we have that calibrating that's keeping us in uh, a humble, measured relation with reality. And uh, the numinous puts us in contact and confrontation with that greater than ourselves that's independent, also independent of us. So it's refining our worldview attunement, homing us against horror. It's a sense of home in the face of horror. Um, and now we're talking about the two different sides of a sacred. That's sacredness. yeah. Sacredness is numinous and worldview attunement. Yes, both. Um, and they're so. What I was saying before is, it's sacredness is the is the opponent processing between you know coming home and then going out to your absolute edge and finding yourself lacking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, uh, and then coming back home and then doing it again. Um, mm-hmm. So. Basically, the coming home would be the meta assimil- assimilation, assimilating to the home, and the the going out into the horror of things is the the meta uh, accommodation, accommodation yeah. which is this interaction is a hi- uh, higher order relevance, relevance realization. Yeah. So not just the initial relevance realization you have in your mind when you come to a realization of something, you know that that aha moment that the brain somehow does, but 
a higher order of that um much higher order that you know i guess you know well it's sacredness it's you know it is much higher it's it's not just within ourselves it's outside of ourselves and then outside of ourselves again beyond even Mm -hmm. further Mm -hmm. um yeah because relevance realization can be used for things as general as um where's the blue dry erase marker and then i see there's a bunch of dry erase markers i can tell by the shape yeah. of the cap and the well, writing it on should them. be in there oh but and it's I not the co- oh. it's not there because i loaned it out to <laughs> relevance you know somebody so, else yeah that's the general kind but then there's this high order relevance realization opponent processing that our brain can also do on the level of what we have to call sacred or sacredness mm-hmm. which is a transjective term and a transjective experience so we're seriously playing with relevance realization now to take it to higher levels of optimization and enhancement, optimizing ourselves to our environment, enhancing ourselves better to be able to play with our environment. So we have this deep functionality of sacredness, playing with the machinery of relevance realization to create states of mind and body interaction that further optimize relevance realization and our sense of connected connectedness with the world and each other. And so it's this reciprocal recursive co-creative processing that we see and we find that music connects us with this somehow yet it isn't necessary and it doesn't music itself doesn't need to mean anything particular yeah it's not about anything to be music you know like well of course there's songs about a girl lyrics or about a story um or even if you get into the classical end where you can you know like you could really hear the sadness this, this yeah. one must be about sadness and maybe it's about a but it's storm just and play too, but, it's but it's really play. doing so much more detailing of that emotion of say sadness than we could ever put into words and the traveling through and in and out of all the different textures and ways sadness can present itself yeah. so it's definitely transjective as, as well and we notice you know or verveke pointed out that nietzsche Notice how life is a mistake without music. It doesn't seem to have any intrinsic meaning to itself, yet it's a mistake. Life would be a mistake without it. Um, And Verveke pointed out that here in the midst of the meaning crisis, we notice the degree to which music has been trivialized. Um, It was previously in our history something that was a deeply sacred practice. Yeah, now now it's just... I don't know. Most of the time, used to sell you on either a product or an idea, um, and usually anymore just of. Uh, That's know, right. It's been used to raise sex. your sit, raise That's the That's pretty much all idea. sex yeah. and doing drugs, not caring about nothing. That's what music has become in a lot of ways. Or I had this experience and trying to like relive the this experience, and it's like well. And a lot, you know, I'm not not to be that guy, but I'm quitting smoking, so I'm a little grumpy right now. I'm just going to go ahead and grump on it. Modern day music is vapid and awful. There's very little, like, there's very little to the subs. Like, okay, listen to pop music from like the '80s, like the '70s and '80s, and how it was produced and put together very well. Hmm. You know, the melodies, harmonies, you know, like. Now, mind you, there was crap pop then too, but like. It's a lot more thought out now. You just get this, you know, rhythmic 
bounce, 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 with this blah, gyrating sound, and then you know, whap, 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 and it's just like, oh my goodness. You know, the cookie cutter approach to commercialization of music. Well, and it's not they, they, definitely. They haven't even bothered with a cookie cutter anymore. It's just yeah. taking spoonfuls of pre. I don't know. It's not pre-programmed. Like there is product, and I'm not knocking producers who make modern music or anything, but there once was a time and maybe I wasn't alive for this time where music would was written to really have an impact on you and, and move you and sway you opposed to just yes, queen, let me get my scissor. Um, why you can't tell me nothing. Yeah. Just me. I'm drinking that moonshine, you know, like yeah. just, but now it is, it's mostly for mere entertainment and to yeah. sell something. Or, or or to put you know our worst behaviors as as the highest goals, you know like There's attachment to the material realm and I, I have a hard time listening to it. I listen to it and then I listen to the lyrics. I'm like, my God, you let your children listen to this? Like not to be like one of those guys, but you know it's just like remember remember back when we were we were kids and stuff. There was the parental advisories. There ain't none of that no more. Not nearly. As much as there used to be, everything is just wide open and accessible for the most part. You have to click a button to say, yes, I'm this or that. But Yeah, now it's like I'm watching commercials that are selling like, you know, Nerf guns to kids and stuff. And then you listen in the background. And you're like, wait, I think I know this song. What is it? And then you're like, oh, this isn't exactly that song, but this is still the same kind of song that's, you know, trying to tell you to twerk they, your they butt. They know and- what patterns of different beats and sounds appeal or have worked in previous songs, so well, they will replicate the things and boil them down to. Yeah, and it's become more rhythmic and less melodic, so mm-hmm. There's only using one side of the brain opposed to using both at the same mm-hmm. time. And, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, that that's my gripe with music. You know, I don't mean to be one of those snobs because I'm, I'm not. I'm the last person to know any you know any band's name or this that or the other but you know i can hear what what's on the commercials and what's popping out of people's cars and what everybody's thinking is hips and hot you know and what the youtube is trying to sell me on you know it's like oh music now here's all this and then you listen to it and you're like yeah the trivialized is a good word for it music has been trivia trivialized in our modern day you still hear good stuff here and there. no mine no and really there are some out. really and good, good special there are some really awesome musicians doing some really awesome stuff nowadays yeah no doubt. but it's not it's it's not, not at the center the of yeah. cultural the cultural eye anymore no and and you, you know, know i always th- always think about how in the 90s for instance our music was still so variant and there's so mm-hmm. many different super talented artists out there but they were so different from one another yet everyone still loved them all and so you had such a you know you had your you know your nirvana and your smashing pumpkins and then you had your sound garden and your uh, allison chains and tool and some of this hard rock stuff but then you had red hot chili peppers and sublime and 311 and cake you know and you know. cake and it, it just keeps on going and we had so Our much spin doctors man spin doctors were great yeah and so <laughs> and tom petty and, and on and on and and so you see that there's a lot of variety in the mainstream still that was still making it into the mainstream but ever since then through the 2000s and i don't know everything just sounds the same 20s, anymore now yeah. they've they've certainly really continually boiled it down, and a, a, most of what makes it on the mainstream now is even more cookie cutter than 
than it was uh, before. And now less and less original stuff is making it forward because the music production companies, they're just well, betting on what they know works. They're afraid to try the new as much the, anymore. The music industry as it was, you know, back in our day, but like in the 90s and early 2000s is dead. It's dying or it's dying. Yeah. And yeah. It, ha- it doesn't realize it's dead Oh, look dead what yet. happened to old hip hop. I mean, the way that hip hop started out is so different than the way it is today it started out as this very uplifting educational inspiring and Um, good messages well and and also telling stories like telling stories truthful honest but it wasn't glorifying uh womanizing or materialism well now we got this what is what what is a drill rapping which is basically from what i gather is people who shoot up people or do crimes and then them snitching on themselves what? It's like I've heard ones where they'd be like, "Yeah, I took out this dude," and then like naming a place okay, yeah. and a time yeah. and what they did, what they did it with, and I'm just like, "Like, yo, like, dude, come on now, <laughs> like, is this admissible in court? Like, what's going on here?" It's a strange place, uh, it's a strange time to be. Yeah, that is for sure. And then you got mumble rap, and I just can't tell what they're talking about because you know, I'm like, oh. Then there's artfulness to some of it, but a lot of it's also just copycat. Yeah, well, and it's being encouraged by the music industry, the copycatting. Well, and to a certain extent, like and any scene that develops develops because people enjoy a certain style of music and a yeah. certain thing that's going on, and they get into the movement of it, and then naturally, what genres they do, expand and grow. And, and, but they're not. And what you do musically is colored by those you listen to and those you're around yeah, and your yeah. scene, if you will. Sure. I, I I get it. I, I I just you know it like, seems like the copycat thing has turned up though excessively and that's most of what you see well, now and, and, and it's not as much venturing out and trying something new but yeah, mumble rap is something new you got to give it that right uh, well it's it's old at this point um, true but it was <laughs> it was a new form of hip hop and it is creative in a lot of ways I come from I come from the day of uh, the rappers who would see who can you know spit the fastest lines the clearest you know like. Mm-hmm. You know, like Tech Nine. You know, that guy was fast, like a Tech Nine. You know, like yeah. And then they then they start getting witty with it, and there was connected underlying deep meanings that you could read into. And you could you could hear a cipher three different ways and get three different meanings out of just that one little line. You know, but nowadays when a fad pops off, it really gets super replicated. Yeah, to the point of banality. You know, it just gets ground out, ground down to flatness over after so much. Uh, repeated um, reciprocating of this initial idea. It's- yeah, and that might be a function of um, the fact, you know, the, the the viral phenomenon, the fact that we have instant communication that can happen all at once, and then there seems to be this True. emergent quality of virality yeah. where it's like. And the music industry is doing what it does. It's just trying yeah. to find what's making money, and then okay, let's put more of that out, and then that, of course, plays into well encouraging we have- people to do it more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To to feed that need. So, you know, it's what it is. But, but yeah, yeah, don't be afraid to be creative. I love hearing people do things that haven't been done before or doing them in unique ways, putting their own unique spin on it. So when you see that mumble rapper that's also got an actual drummer next to him and a guy playing the sax, that's awesome, you know. Yeah, can we and bring when you back see the like techno band instruments? that's actually doing everything live yeah. instead of just sampling, they're literally they have a drummer, they have instrumentalists and you know. Um we we can play around here. We got plenty of room to grow, and we don't want to get stagnant. And that's uh, 
That's what sacredness is for. It helps us reach to our the very edge of our capacity and then come back home and understand, okay, how did we get there? How did we do? Can we do it better next time? Speaking of sacredness and music, um, that band Highlung. Oh, perfect example. Yo, that stuff will, like, first off, okay, you'll go through, you, you'll be riveted first off and looking and just yeah. like. Almost a little horrified. Yeah, like because like Highlung is, is very like, you know, Northern European pagan uh, shamanistic tradition. Oh, yeah, so, so, you know, they're wearing horns and, and you got guys yeah. that are like, blah, blah, and, you know, like, yeah, like ta- and doing Viking the real deep, and- like throat chanting strangeness, but like. It's eerily beautiful and then powerful, yeah. and then the emotions behind it, like you, you know, like feel like something that's been lost for such a long time has come back there is into something you. Ancient in there, and then there's this beauty, yeah. as well um, that's being communicated, and and they're definitely participating in something very not sacred, but sacredness Feels of close the to tr- home, close to nature, yeah, and they're you know they're actually using a dead language. I forget specifically which one, but you know the old runic language, and they're speaking the poems in the that language as well which you know that language is a very sonically alive language like english is sonically dead like our our vowels don't make shapes in sand they don't Hmm. they don't uh like you know a does nothing um whereas like you know like all like french has a little bit of that you know like but certain sounds and vowels uh, hebrew as well as a sonically alive language Hmm. Um, That's and Arabic as well too. Yeah. Um, so it manip- literally manipulates matter. Um, so it's cool to hear music going through that, and it gives you these feelings. It's very strange and horrifying, but uh, you know, you know, elating, elating and freeing and hoping at the same time. Yeah. So m- music can be that. Yeah. Yeah. Which we're using the word horrifying because it's on the cusp of the thing that we're trying to talk about. Awe is probably a good word for it. Because it is on the verge of being like destabilizing almost. I like, mean, what is this? I haven't seen this if, before. If you're a, a very sheltered, very conservative Christian person, you watch say, this, that you would probably think these are like That's devils great. and this is the work of Satan. Yeah, yeah right. Because it literally sounds, at some point, sounds like demons. Yeah. But that's the point of certain portion, you know, portions of the song, because maybe they're talking about that's what, a, ba- a battle that happened eons ago. That's the story of the history of their peoples, mm-hmm. or and something maybe there like is some that. demiurge that gets to speak at some point, and you hear yeah. its voice. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, high lung. Uh, if you if you want to get that, see how music can really participate in sacredness, and these people are intentionally doing that as well. They're doing mm-hmm. it as like a shamanistic experience with people mm-hmm. um, for the purposes of bringing back, you know, old ways of meaning making and such. Sure. It's really high long also means healing. So oh, that's I love their, it. that's their whole shtick. Yeah. 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 They're pretty yeah. Cool there guys. is ultimately, you can feel that underlying sense of grace, but talk about original man. I, I like super original. Yeah. And, and I'll listen to stuff that's like really creative. They kind of sound like, like Mongolian hard metal bands. Like it's funny how like that style of music, it's very original and unique, but you can hear the influences. Well, it's it somehow because like, you know, pretty far from Mongolia and that tradition, but still like there's some familiarity of this ancient, you know, mm. kind of thing mm. going on in there. Um, something in our tribal past that we can pick up on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Back when, you know, 
back when we there was much 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 less of us and much less diversity in form mm-hmm. you know back when we were many fewer tribes and less diversity um, in music too yeah, yeah. And, and that like the core nugget and then fractures bar anyway i'm I, i'm going on a tangent that's a fun tangent to go on though that's a good one yeah. so some music <sighs> we, we recognize how it's become uh trivialized to some degree yeah. Uh, in regards to our connection to it nowadays as well, we don't go to music for something sacred necessarily all the time. Yeah. Sometimes we're just going for entertainment. Um, but we do recognize how it always helps us when we're troubled in life because it does reconnect us with the sense of the sacred. So even if you're the most nihilistic person on the planet and you still, when you're really down, you're, you know, and you listen to a certain song, um, it can help reconnect you. You know, we go to music, you know, we, we hunger for music sometimes because of that reason we don't know why we're doing it but it is because it is connecting us with that sense of sacredness that homes us from horror that brings us back home even in the face of horror so we so music is for its own sake it's a way to represent the sacred that evokes the being mode it gives us a perspectival sense and participatory participatory sense and way of relating and deep transformation can come through it as it helps elucidate somehow our agent arena relations our relationship with reality as the person we are with the world and the people that we're in and around somehow music speaks on that deep deep level that can reconnect us and on that note did you have anything else yourself nope All right, we're going to jump back in for the final section of this episode. All right, guys, let's go. Going to rewind a little bit here. Aspects to them also are rich uh, with the symbolic machinery that is designed to activate and seriously play with this. So I want want to talk about uh, the relationship or the role that symbols have in, in, in our experience of sacredness. So, the important thing is how we're going to use this word. And, and symbol then originally means to put two things together. Um, and I want to... I wanna, uh, Distinguish this, um, the, the talk that I did with Chris that you'll see, uh, one of the talks also uh, distinguishes between a symbol and a sign, so I won't go into great detail here. Uh, this is sort of central and semi- semiotic, because we use this term in multiple ways, like we talk about abstract symbolic thought, um, but when, then we talk about you know, the, 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 the cross as, a, as an important religious symbol, and we can get very quickly confused. And so, a sign refers, right? So, it, 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 by looking at it, we can look through it to look at something else. So, I can use this as a, as a sign for love, because when you see this, it helps you to think of love. But this doesn't actually exemplify. Symbols refer, right? But more importantly, they exemplify in a particular way. They exemplify by getting you to participate in that to which they refer. 
they're going to invoke, of course, participatory knowing because they have to do ultimately with getting down to the machinery of the agent arena participatory relationship. So compare this as a sign for love, and this is something, as I said, that Chris and I did, to kissing someone, because kissing someone doesn't just make you think of love, it actually gets you to participate, it activates and gets the machinery. Kissing is, and I mean this carefully, is a serious play with the machinery of the agent arena relationship so that we can participate in a reciprocal relationship with another human being where we are right where there's reciprocal realization occurring uh, between us we can together remember the being mode etc so there's a difference there I, I want to try and, 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 and unpack this a little bit more symbols do this do this sort of double job and they do this by having at their core a metaphor. And we've got to slow down here because this is also something that needs to be understand, understood a little bit more carefully. And we've talked about this before about the word metaphor is itself a metaphor. It means to carry over or carry across. What I'm doing in a metaphor is I have two different domains and I want to see this domain differently so I basically look through, this is at least uh, the theory of Bloch, I look through this thing to look at this. So I'm saying that Sam is a pig, here's Sam, here's a pig. I put on sort of pig glasses, sorry for that, and then I look at Sam differently and there's the, the salience topography of Sam is altered, or Tony talks about this in salience imbalance, and that reconfiguration of what I find salient in Sam allows me to see Sam differently. I get an insight into Sam. And of course, I'm not actually claiming that Sam is a pig, and I'm not just uh, comparing and saying Sam is like a pig. I'm doing this act of looking through and seeing this, and thereby getting an insight into it in an important way. That's fine. Okay. Now, we have to understand, first of all, how, pro how pervasive and profound metaphor is because we have a tendency to think of it, again, as largely ornamental. Our, our culture is so beset comprehensively by patterns of trivialization. Again and again and again, you hear me say, we have trivialized this, we have trivialized that. Okay, we've talked about this, but I want to bring it back and develop it a little bit how much of our thinking, and this goes to the work of Lakoff and Johnson, but I'll, I'll criticize it in a minute. Um, and also somebody who I'm going to talk about later, uh, Barfield. Right. That we don't realize how much of our cognition, it, our, our ways of thinking and interacting with the world are being structured by metaphor. So, Right, to use an example, I'm halfway through this lecture as if I was moving through a space. But I hope you get my point, or at least see what I'm saying. But you might not be able to, because what, some of the stuff I'm saying is really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to get my point. 
but I hope you understand me. It used to be understand, by the way, stand within, but we changed it to understand, stand under. It's interesting, right? Even, right, even words that you don't realize are metaphorical, have a metaphorical origin, like interest, remember this? Inter-essay, to be within something. So they're, they're, we're, we're often, you see, we're much more naturally poetic than we realize. We are, we are constantly trying to do this, use one thing, look through one thing at another. Now, I have some criticisms of Lakoff and Johnson because they argue that what it is is I have some embodied practice and then that just gets projected up into abstract thought. And so one of their prototypical examples is well, I'll say things like he attacked my argument Right? And that's supposed to be from the hallmark of you know, abstract thought, that's from argumentation, where we're at our most rational. But we're actually using this word attacked, right? which goes back to you know, physical assault. And the idea is we take what we have here and we project it onto here. And I think this notion of projection is too simplistic. But this is the basic idea. I, I, I know what this is because it's embodied physical interaction, it's participatory, right? I know what it is to attack somebody, and then I use that, right? I, I sort of just project that onto the abstract conceptual domain, and that's how I get he attacked my argument. Uh, this, this reminds me of a point in Barfield. Barfield says, you know, you read, you read in the old um, text, and they'll use words like noumena, pneuma, sorry. Right, which stands either for wind or spirit, um, and we can only hear it one way or the other, uh, and that's why we break it into two words. I sort of get what Barfield's saying here, but the point is we have the, we we use this word, right, and we 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 and we move between these without realizing it. Like we attacked the castle, he attacked my argument, and those aren't the same, but we may actually not notice uh, that we're using them differently. Uh, now, why do I say that? Well, this is work that I published, uh, a couple uh, articles with John Kennedy, where we said this simple model of just projecting doesn't seem quite right because this, for example, carries with it, I, I can say I attacked the castle or I assaulted the castle, right? But if I say I assaulted his argument, it's like, what? What does that mean? That's weird. The, 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 the near synonym doesn't transfer. And notice the reverse, abstract thought. Instead of saying, I attacked his argument, I can say, I criticized his argument. But if I say, ah, let's criticize the castle, you don't, what? what? That sounds like a weird Monty Python routine. See, what I'm trying to show you is that we didn't, there isn't a simple sort of identity relation. We didn't just project this. And it's not that 
right, we're just sort of trapped between two meanings, we seem to clearly have an, a sense of this that points downward towards the physical assault and then points upwards, if you'll allow me these metaphors, uh, towards the conceptual. Notice also something else. Notice the three things I used earlier. I used, did you see my point? Do you grasp what I'm saying? Do you understand it? Right? Do you get it? These are very different interactions. These are very different things. There's seeing, there's understanding, there's getting, and there's grasping. And yet, all of those independently converge towards making something intelligible, right? The act of making something intelligible. What, sele what selected these four very different things and drew them up to their common converged meaning? See, what I'm trying to show you is it's not simply that this gets projected up. There's also something up here that's constraining and acting downward, helping us select which of all of our embodied existence we are going to use for our more abstract, conceptual topics. All right. So why is that important? Because I think that points towards a different way of understanding what the metaphor is doing. So I, I, we, there, of course, is an element of projecting, if projecting means to throw. But I think there's something much more complicated and interesting going on in a metaphor that isn't simply projection, which is, of course, itself a metaphor. OK, so I think that symbols are going to tap into these deeper kinds of metaphors, not just the metaphors that are the ornamentations of language. These are the metaphors, these more profound metaphors that are structuring our cognition. And, they, and I'm trying to point out to you that they have no, not only a bottom-up emergence, they have a, a top-down emanation going on in them. There's a sense in which both sides are interacting in a powerful way. We need, we need a much more dynamic account of what's at work in metaphor. So let's build towards that dynamic account. And we, we've already gained something, that symbols are going to be making use of these profound metaphors. The metaphors that are not just metaphors of speech, but are structuring the way we are making sense, making meaning of the world. Now, one important point of these kinds of metaphors that triggers on the participation, gets into the profundity, but doing something with it is one of the jobs of these metaphors, right, is to hold in mind. Okay. So let me give you right, an example of this. We care about justice. We really do. It's important to us. Our culture, in fact, is really wrestling with what does justice mean and how do we best serve it? How do we best realize it? But that means you need to be able to reflect on justice. You need to be, to, to be able to contemplate it, to think about it. 
if you're going to think about it and not just emote or assert about it. If you're going to think about it, you need to hold it in mind. But how do you hold it in mind? If I were to ask you, without repeating the word justice, hold justice in mind. Do it. Hold, like, what are you doing? Like, you, right? you might be holding sort of a prototypical instance, but when I do this, and I do this repeatedly with my class, what people tell me is, well, when they want to sort of c contemplate justice to, so they can reflect on it and get clearer about what it means to them, they often invoke a symbol. They invoke the symbol of the woman, blindfolded, holding a sword, carrying, right, the, holding the scales. So one of the things you're noting is that this, of course, is, is a profound metaphor. We use the notions of balance all throughout our, our talk about justice. We also use the sword as deciding, cutting, right? But let's stick with the balance. This allows us to hold justice in mind. That's it, like, stop, pause. If that's all the symbol was doing, that in and of itself is such a valuable thing we need to pause and appreciate. If I can't relate to justice in a participatory fashion where I can engage in it and I'm trying to internalize it and I'm trying to get clearer about it. I can't do any of that unless I can activate it and hold it in mind. And I need a symbol to do that. Now the symbol is metaphorical. Justice isn't literally a scale, a balance. What's going on here? And what's right? It, and how does it plug into where I'm trying to argue there's something more than just projection going on? And th this gets me to a notion that I've mentioned to you before. Acceptation. This really, like, really important work. You've got to read his book by Michael Anderson on this. This is the idea that your brain right, is an, a self-exaptation machine not only across species evolutionary, but more recently in his work within a brain in its own uh, development. So to remember the example, my tongue has been exapted for speech. It has a structural functional organization uh, for doing a particular set of tasks, but it, of course it has, remember the robot and the battery, it has all kinds of side effects, and those side effects are an ongoing reservoir of sets of capacities that I can tap into and make a new structural functional organization to do a new thing, which is what I'm doing right now. I'm speaking. So the tongue has been exapted for speech. And what he's arguing is that a lot of what we see in our cognition is what he calls circuit reuse, circuits that have been used for uh, one thing, get reused, get, get exapted in the way I've just described by reconfiguring their structural functional organization, right, so that side effects become central effects, right, and, and what you do is you get a new m machine, a new capacity uh, created that way. So let's try and think about this, right. We've got a clear example in the cerebellum. Right? The cerebellum originally evolved for helping you to keep your physical balance. Right? 
And what it does is it takes information from many different sense modalities and is constantly looking for how to find patterns of contingency, patterns of relationship between what's happening in my vision, what's happening in my body. And it's really helping to do all this sophisticated coordination and smoothing out so that they start to coordinate together much better. That's your cerebellum. It's centrally involved in your balance. But you know what you've done? We've, the cerebellum has been exapted. To, to, it's, been, it's used not only for finding balance between like my, 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 my seeing and my moving, it's been exapted to find right, deeper coordination between any different areas of domain in your brain. The cerebellum also allows you to integrate your vision with your working memory so that you can do visual imagery. Now, let's put this together carefully. You've got this right machinery of exaptation. You've got balance. And now what you're doing when you call up the balance idea is you're actually, right, notice your cerebellum has been exapted up to helping to you manage m massively complex contingencies between variables. You know what you have to do to be a just person? You have to know how to balance. You have to optimize the relationship between, you have to pick up on and coordinate and smooth out the complex interaction between multiple variables. That's justice. You know what you can do if you invoke balance and don't just talk about it, but try and participate in it? You can actually do the reverse of this. You can go back through balance right and trigger activate you can go from justice through balance back to activating the machinery of the cerebellum like normally i am looking through all of that machinery at something but what I can do with the symbol is, no, no, I don't want to, I, I, I want to actually sort of retrace, reactivate, go back through exaptation and activate the machinery of balance so that I can then use that machinery in order to get an optimal grip on this other domain, which is justice. See, this isn't just simple projection, right? There's, there is not only a projecting up, there is an emanating back down. You're also reversing and going down and trying to reactivate this machinery in an important way. There's a top-down guidance that is intersecting with the bottom-up projection. And so the symbol is in that sense deeply participatory. You are trying to participate in this activation of the very cognitive machinery that is used both in participating in balance, you don't just look at balance, you have to be balanced, perspectively participatory, and then taking that machinery into being just, having your perspectival and participatory machinery aligned in a certain way. That's what the symbol is doing for you. It is deeply uh, participatory. It allows you to hold in mind and then look back through to activate 
and then bring that back up to have insight, participatory and perspectable insight into something like justice. We're going to talk more next time about the symbol and how it relates to our experience of sacredness. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Meow, 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 rough, 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 meow, rough, 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 meow, rough, 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 meow, all right, fam. That was awesome. I'm feeling for DJ over here because he is definitely in the midst of nicotine withdrawals. And if any of you out there have ever tried or actually succeeded in quitting smoking cigarettes or nicotine addiction, you know it's a miserable experience. So you're, the difference between you're doing it there, brother. You're doing well. The difference between sign and symbol. Yeah. So the uh, the sign is referential, but in a non example way you know this, you draw a heart that that you know okay that's a sign that points to okay love but really it's not love it's not a good example of love it's not even a good example of the human heart yeah uh, you know so yeah, it's it's just referring whereas the symbol um which means to put two things together uh is referenced by uh participation Mm-hmm. It exemplifies yeah. rather than just refers mm-hmm. by evoking a sense of participation with mm-hmm. what they represent. So you have the act of kissing. Verbeke goes into this now, and he calls this serious play because the partners are participating in a reciprocal relation with another human being to together remember the being mode. And to relish and revel in the being mode together. So at at symbols core is metaphor, mm-hmm. um, and you know he really points uh, points to how pervasive and profound metaphor is. It's everywhere, everywhere, every word that we use. Just about, yeah, you know, it's and so we're actually very poetic beings without even knowing it because we are always using poetic terms we're mm-hmm. always using these metaphors you feel me <laughs> yeah, right. no no that's creepy no, no, no i don't mean that man. actually literally, <laughs> literally no i didn't didn't just feel you yeah we, we look through metaphors to see and to to see we mean to understand right there is a metaphor to see mm-hmm. well there's another one to understand and to understand which used to be interstand yeah, helps us to see differently. Understand. Yeah, Sorry, gives us an insight. They are pervasive and profound. We don't realize how much of reality is structured by metaphor. Yeah. Something is interesting because it is an interactive essay. It's to be in something, to be involved into by something. We're constantly yeah. doing this, looking through one thing into another or to help describe another. Like, this is the frame of perspective I'm coming from. So I'm using this metaphor of a frame of perspective to give you an impression of this is the way that I'm seeing this thing that I'm trying to, you know, this is the angle I'm looking at it from. Angle is another metaphor there. It's all 
visual based or movement based or some kind of embodying animated way go on sorry i cut you off there um no just metaphor the so the limitations of metaphorical projection in the sense of like he was bringing up um you know uh you're you attacked my argument well mm-hmm. how do we know like well we know that you didn't necessarily mean you know you beat up my argument or stabbed it or laid siege to it or or yeah, whatever like you attack a castle or something um, yeah. it, um use the other word what is it uh n- uh numina like wind and spirit numa. we don't mm-hmm. numa we don't use them at the same time to mean wind or spirit um it also refers to lung as well, you know, mm-hmm. like pneumonia. Um, but um, so pro- pro- projection isn't enough. And we seem to use many different metaphors that are all different, but are all pointing to the same thing. And, yep. you know, what is that? Yeah, do that you get what I'm that, saying? What? Yeah, and what is that thing that holds all them together to... Well, I guess, you know, what, what is, what is relevant to each one of these words? You know, do you, do you get what I'm, you know? Cause there's something specific you're trying to say when you're using a metaphor. So to really help the other person narrow in on what you're trying to say, we use very specific words that mean certain things in certain contexts. So, you know, I can say, do you get what I'm saying? Do you see, so get what I'm saying, mm-hmm. see what I mean? Uh, do you grasp it? Do you understand it? And all of these converge towards making something intelligible, making something more intelligible. So it's like we're focusing together when we use metaphors and yeah. on something. So it's not just, but it's not just a bottom-up emergence or a top-down uh, convergence. It's both happening at yeah. once. It's an interesse. <laughs> it, it actually is, though, a reciprocal process. It's another opponent processing mm-hmm. that we're seeing happening. And we're seeking here a dynamic account of metaphors. That's why we're going through all of this. What is the brain doing in this process, in this part of the relevance relation? Yeah, so it's, it, it, well, it's finding the balance because, mm-hmm. like, you're not literally attacking somebody. Like, you know, I, oh, I feel, I feel attacked. Yeah. Well, you don't actually feel, like, bruised and battered and beaten, you know, yeah. so, but... But the idea is being but, offended, or I'm being offended. Well, you, you've you got know? a symbol now, yeah. attacked, so there's some type of, uh, you know, transgression. We use attack because we take our ideas personally. Yeah. 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 And that so that, that gets in. So a metaphor is a, you, you could say, I know it's kind of inverse, but you could say a metaphor is a symbol as well to hold place for an idea that can't necessarily be held without a word. Mm-hmm. So right. we use symbol, like symbols. Symbolic um, terms. You know, like um, in instead of the name Jupiter, the planet and whatever, and where it is in the sky, there's a shape that we use for it. And then we combine them with other things. And that's our base understanding of time and how things move around and yada, 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 magic symbols. You know, it's not just, Oh, there's power in this symbol for the sheer sake that, you know, this squiggly line has some power in it. It's like, no, what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, what does it mean? What is the lightning? What is the idea to be held into the in in the mind? It means power, for instance. That's right. What idea am I trying to project for you or help you to get to understand? Well, and also, so like, say you're driving, right? And you're thinking about a lot of things. And instead of having a sign that says, 
please slow down here because there are pedestrians that may or may not be crossing. No, we have a sign. It's like a yield for pedestrians and has people walking and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it, it's a placeholder for a concept that's much longer than we can, or the explanation of is much longer than we could hold in our head for, you know, usable, uh, or not for, but in a usable way. Right. Um, yeah. You couldn't hold all of the space and all the detail of that stretch of land. Well, you have a stop sign. In your mind. Okay. It says stop, but we don't say like, oh, as soon as I see it, stop. No, mm-hmm. it's, it's stop here. And if it says four way, it's. I don't know why I was thinking. Stops. I was seeing one of those green signs that show you shows you 14 miles to this city, 24 mm-hmm. miles to that city, you know, but stop sign too. Well, those yeah. are, those are, those are symbols too. And then you get into, you know, sacred symbology and the importance of you know what what is the meaning behind say like sacred symbols why do are certain beast references as having so many horns or uh why we depict in you know old art um certain positions of the body what does that mean you know is it the right hand doing it or is it the left because one is pleasure mm-hmm. and one is pain mm-hmm um, so, so yeah, one's like, the angel, one's the devil. And if sometimes. you get sophisticated enough with metaphor and symbols, you can encode a lot of information in, say, one painting. Very small. Or one very small set of words. That's right. You know, it's almost like a secret code, if you will, but your brain, you, your brain already kind of does this in its own way. Yeah, well, we're always naturally. doing this because every time that we speak, we're using a metaphor to convey what we mean in every sentence. There's always metaphors. Yeah. And so it's it's a constant process. Yeah. We really are poets at heart. That's well, the, so the cool. fruits of your labor. Not literally, like you're not literally a fruit farmer, but we've heard that, you know, so much we know what you mean. Oh, the fruits of my labor. Oh, that means mm-hmm. you know I've I've done stuff and I'm going the results of what I do. Yeah, that yeah. it's a lot quicker than being like, well, all that you know, all your preparation that you've done over life is going to pay off, and you're going to get many different things, like you know. Uh, the fruits of your labor, man. Uh, that's it. Okay. That's it. I earned this by the fruit of my labor. So he goes over the word justice. How do you symbolize yeah. something like that? And then we remember that statue with the blindfold and she's holding the scales. So she's weighing evenly, no matter what, based upon what she hears, not what she would prefer to see. And... That's that's a beautiful explanation because what's happening here is when we're using symbols and metaphors, we're exacting. Again, we're, it's a circuit reuse, basically. In the brain, mm-hmm. we can exact something to do something else, like our tongues, which are there to be able to taste to see if there's poison or something in what we're eating, to move things around in the mouth while we're chewing. But all of those side effects of what a tongue can do can become central effects for using it to manipulate the voice for, for actual language and in speech and so, yeah, for so the tongue can t- test what is poison and then exact are we exact to be able to tell other people hey that's poison yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> i know it's poison and now i can tell you it's poison we wanted so badly to be able to convey that idea that we had just of what we had just tasted and we knew that it was going to hurt someone else we eventually did come up with language first symbols for sounds and hand signals a lot of it but we uh we did eventually get to language somehow and it was i mean we wanted to for so long that we figured it out 
So the brain can exact different parts of itself for new uses. So all of the machinery, quote unquote machinery, all the neural networking around the tongue's ability to move itself can be exacted into language, vocal manipulation for the use of being able to utilize speech. And, And as such, the cerebellum, which is originally evolved for just central balance so it's optimizing our central balance it's not just the inner ear it's also yeah. taking in all these visual cues from visory yeah. sensors and auditory sensors and it's bringing all the everything together pressure velocity you know and um, achieve achieving an even more refined sense of central balance and it's not just and so it's coordinating many different sensors yeah, that we have and it's no long and it's no longer just used for the balance of the physical body but the ba- balance of are contextual and uh, conceptual um, uh, capacities for Uh, memory. The word is, um, oh, it's an easy word, landscape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but like it's a balancing of our landscape of understanding and Mm -hmm. where you put symbols in your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're using, I guess, you know, According to the guy who knows about the brain and other people who know about the brain, I guess we're, you know, the cerebellum is also balancing our logic and what is real and what is not. Um, using older, you know, brain technologies, mm-hmm. older technologies, same hardware, same everything else, even the pretty much the same software, just re updating it mm-hmm. for reusing those circuits for something new. well even you know like say he mentioned you know being able to use memory and eyesight to be able to have an inner working space of visualization visualizing now some people can't what's it called like aphantasia or something like that where they have no inner eye at all yeah but you can like practice a game of solitaire that you were doing at home or something while you're like driving the car even you know you're oh that's right the queen was there if you're good enough. If you're good enough at it. But that's a good practice that yeah. you can utilize to build up the inner eye, too. Um, but in that, particularly in that space, you can hold a massive amount of information with very few symbols that you can hold in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's many different mystery schools that teach you how to do this. Yeah. And a lot of their art Remember that symbolism. technique using the, ser- uh, what is it called? The tree. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, the, the. Sephiroth or something like that. No, that sounds Sephiroth like a Final Fantasy Final character. Fantasy. Yeah. But yeah, similar to that. It's a close. Basically, it's a it's a thing like it's a thing that holds the tree, the seed, and all forms of it, self in itself at different stages within itself. Um, not explaining it too good. We're gonna show a picture next episode. Yeah, I can't find one right now. But unfortunately, my uh, without the nicotine, my brain is having a hard time recalling stuff and doing stuff. You know. Turns out I've been tra- taking a neuro, what do you call it, a nootropic for a long time, and now I don't got it, and I'm stupid. Turns out all my all my intelligence came from the cigarettes. It it does help yeah. you focus a bit and concentrate, and uh, people that are often diagnosed with what they call ADD. Yeah, well, uh, it it helps us focus a little bit. So that's a reason it can become quite addictive. I remember when I got off the Ritalin as a kid, I started smoking cigarettes, yeah. and now it uh, now it makes sense. So yeah, I did find. Let's see if I can. Perfect. There it is. Let me blow this up on the other screen. 
I gotta pull this one. Uh, blow it up. There's another metaphor and symbol for you. Yeah, right. Now is that blow it up like boom go. or blow it up like like a balloon? Yeah, I'm blowing it up like a balloon, I guess. Yeah. Oh, it's not showing it. What the heck? <laughs> Let me see. Oh, because that's full screen still. Let's get that off full screen. Oh, such and such and things and such and all this yeah. stupid technology. I'll clean it up in the post. Still can't see it. Still can't see it. Uh, because you have it on screen capture probably just to that window. Ah, you're right. You are right. Okay. Well, so. basically look up the Kabbalah tree of life for... Uh, um, but at its basic core, it's a small world networking system of symbols and placements that you can use to keep track of massive amounts of information. That's right. Um, I'm going to get it. I know how to do it now. I just did it. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm there no expert, is. so I can't tell you, you so know, what each one, node two. means and everything, but you can use this nodular system. And I have, I have a yes. one that's somewhat similar that I use in my own head to keep track of things. It's just my weird way yeah yeah however you know you can find you can hold in your head so what we have here is one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven nodes you could just do these eight right here and then you can start adding as you're able to but you could use this to memorize any number of things that you need to do in a day for instance or uh, steps to a process that you need to complete or it's abstract or abstract relationships mm. between things that mm -hmm. aren't necessarily um, obviously connected mm -hmm. or like sometimes, you know, being able to hold a space for a, a pseudo known or a pseudo unknown. Like it's like, eh, it doesn't really fit into anything. So I can just put it over here and it can sit over here for a little bit, you know, that, that kind of, but you know, so the symbol, it's important. There's a lot of powerful. No, there's a lot of nonsense like symbolatry, and you know, like, and by that I just mean like the kitschy. Look at this thing, and it's really cool, and not much more into it. Or the the and sorry, Wiccans, but I'm gonna knock you because not even a real religion. Um, it was made by a guy who just wanted to get with the ladies and manipulate and control them. But anyway, like the Wiccan, you know, like I'm going to draw the symbol and I'm a witch and I'm going to do these things, which first off, don't go doing that because there's some power behind these things and you don't want to meet the things that you might be summoning or crafting or doing whatever with, even if it is just in your head, you know, there's a reason why like, there's an homage there, I think, in the founding of Wicca, even if the guy was trying to get with. It's definitely an homage to and trying to reimagine or remember these ancient wisdom practices that we'd lost touch with, which is yeah, an unfortunate but story. It's turn it's not It's not an but it's not the continuation It's not grounded in anything of the really. previous more, pagan yeah, mythologies it's, it's a, that the the Wiccan some it's of the Wiccan picked, ideas it's draw a from and, cho and chosen type of it's an imperfect attempt to recapitulate those old ways yeah um, but but pagan is just a word for not one kind of religion but for a bunch of different kinds of folk yeah I didn't want local I religions didn't, that were all I didn't want to get too far into that oh but, sure but sure. the use you know the no the, it's an important distinction to make though the the willy nilly usage of symbols is 
not a good thing. And, and you make a really good point that we shouldn't use these things for personal selfish gain and be very careful I with mean, the energies that no, we're playing like, with. No, like feel free to use symbology and these techniques for selfish gain. And but like you know, like this idea of I'm going to use an ancient symbol I know nothing about, put it in a way, and do certain little you know set of practices without knowing fully what you're getting into well that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah. that's the warning um, that they're in um but you know eastern some, traditions like buddhism they warn against the use of magic for personal interest because it yeah. can be very dangerous and it's for the wise and the adept and yeah be ready, well you know there's certain things like you know like hey if you got a business and you want to sell you can use a good sigil for the name of your store and to catch people's eyes and to draw them in and use uh, sigil magic's interesting because you can make your own and put intentions into it in yeah the way it and if your business is something that's designed to be win-win enrichment for the customer and for I mean, you and it's you know you're not just being greedy and this you, and that there's no, no have, wrong nothing wrong with the use of a symbol there you, you yeah, can or sigil well i mean if it works it works you know morality aside and all that but that's of course um, true but we're just warning of there's our re, there are repercussions for the ill. Ideally, if things. you have a business, you want to be a win-win situation because you're not going to last very long. Because contrary to popular belief, just being greedy and having a lot of power does not a good business make. No, it doesn't you know? make a good business. That the reason why everybody for the world. The reason why everybody people. buys from Amazon or uses Google and we know all about it is because they provide a service that we're like, okay, yeah, I feel like I got. I feel like I got good enough out of this agreement that I'm going to keep doing it with you. Yeah, but you companies know? like you could say BlackRock are not in possession of that's a totally that's a totally different monster. Well intended, yeah. That's a totally it's, different uh, bag of. Um, it's because they're tricks using there. Oh yeah, well, and using, I wouldn't even call them a business because they're they're not a bit like necessarily what you think of a normal business. They are. Num number shufflers yeah. and investment, you know. Well, what I'm pointing to is that know. sometimes companies monopolize too. So, oh, sure. you know, we definitely have that situation where there is a misuse of power symbols for just purely greedy personal gain <laughs> because they work. Yep. But the deg degradation and uh, destabilization and, imba and imbalance that they end up causing. I mean, but they have the a third of the world's the wealth, and yeah. that's the first third that's going to disappear if shit hits the fan mm. because we don't care about your investments we don't care about any of that okay yeah maybe you'll have a lot of investment in materials because they don't actually own it like something like that doesn't actually own anything the investment is for control they just own debt or shares yeah the investment or, is to mass power yeah. and control which sure can be dangerous because whatever blackrock says with their esg and all that nonsense that they push forward uh tends to go for a while but we're watching that collapse too you know pretty much everybody who's delved into the ESG world as far as a corporate entity is, uh, you know, biting their nails right now as they're watching the ground slide out, if not directly around them, around their neighbors, and it's coming for them too. Yeah, because it is true that yeah. creating that win-win scenario with yourselves and your customers <coughs> as a business is the most conducive to true long-term survival beyond uh -huh. just like 100 years. We're talking, you know, you want your business to last a real test of time and go a thousand years into the future, you're going to make it a win-win for the people. It's yeah. And actually, so down to uh, symbols, whether you're using them for personal gain or not, if you're going to go ahead, but this is, you, you'll see what happens in the future when you use them. Cause like ESG is a symbol. It's a symbol for environmental social governance credit score, basically. 
uh, for a much bigger idea. And, you know, like corporations as well as social groups and stuff will use words as symbol or well, we tend to, in, you know, at least in the U.S., break everything down into letters that mean words and then words that mean a whole bunch of other freaking words. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're using these, you know, symbols like, you know, like environment. That's a powerful symbol to have in your head. There's a lot of power between environments, you know. We're always on the, the edge of an environmental catastrophe nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is, you know, it's, it's this huge thing. Social, well, social is huge for us. We're social creatures, but now everything's social justice and social this and social that. Very powerful. And they're pretending Very term, powerful. Yeah, and they're and, and not then, necessarily honest representations yeah. of what they're pretending to represent. And then, gee, governance. Well, that's always been the thing, you know. We don't want too much, and we don't want too little. And it always seems like we have way too much, and then none at all, and then it all, and, you know, none at all, none at all, bloody, horrible, and then try to fix it and then too much again mm-hmm. and I want to avoid the other end so but still government powerful symbol social powerful symbol environment powerful symbol you know I could go over you know like um, DEI diversity equity inclusion these are symbols they're words but they're symbols and they're to mean things and actually some of these things mean two things one thing to the rest of the world Another thing to the people who know what these things mean, who are in on it, or who have studied mm-hmm. enough to it's, know what yeah, in on it is. Signifying more than one thing at once. Yeah, yeah. no, the, the symbols have power, um, a lot of power. So, And my whole thing is, moralistically speaking, is like, you know, you do you, you do what you're going to do, but it's going to... Well, the, you know, let, let, let's put a fair warning out there. Be wise with your use of symbols oh, yeah. because we're trying to live on this planet together. Yeah. So if you go out there doing a bunch of dark magic just because you're power hungry and greedy and it's... Or even just curious. Or, well, yeah, even just curious and alone and a little bit nihilistic. But the wor- um, And also the worst harm can come from the best intentions. So And, and you then know, you could be just... That's where wisdom comes Very well intended. Know and, when to act and when not to. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, it is a... Be careful using sigil magic or magic in general. Yeah. Um, In fact, probably not use it at all unless you're using it for what you know truly, absolutely is good for one and all. And it's coming from a place of love. And then for sure, um, you're putting out blessings at that point. You're putting out prayers and blessings with gratitude and appreciation of the world around you and a reciprocal relation. uh, If you are a maker and you make a maker's mark that is making a sigil so figure out like like yeah okay your maker's mark could just be your initials but like just the initial stamp but your maker's mark is something unique that is you too so you're making a symbol for your craftsmanship i have a maker's mark it looks like a rounded uh rounded window with four panes and then um two lines coming up to the horizon kind of like looking out into a road or looking out into the distance hmm. Spells out my name. It spells out a few other things that nice. I hold near and dear. Yeah, um, it's a it's a control sigil for me as well because, you know, after I'm done, I can put it on my thing and it's good because I've controlled myself all the way through to create whatever it is. And it is sound, and so this yeah. is like the proof of yeah. the sound. Yeah. yeah, yeah, proof mark, if you will. Or you know, who did this? They did a terrible job, and look at it, be like, oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> you know <laughs> right yeah um 
But yeah, and not to be mystical or nothing, because it could just be a function of the brain and how the brain works, and then the collective brain of everybody works that makes the magic happen. Well, that's just, you know, that's how we came up with letters and symbols and words in the first place is that we originally first we had just invented sigils so you had like you'd have like a lightning bolt that you would paint on your skin or on a rock Mm -hmm. near where you lived to and that's to give the impression of not a lightning bolt but power strength Mm -hmm. something like that and that once people understand that that's what's being conveyed by that once that click happens in their brain for the first time it's like whoa this person is like just painted the power symbol in front of me after I asked them for food and like, they seem angry and this is like dangerous and it evokes a lot of meaning and people that were really good with symbols and knew a lot of symbols and could evoke a lot of different kinds of concepts and emotions and people with those symbols were considered wizards or magicians. And once we, so we, so that's where our first letters came from was initially magical symbols. They were sigils. Once we started linking them together, many sigils many spells together to make a larger meaning we called it spelling so you link a bunch of sigils together now you got a word you got a bunch of letters forming a word and in this way and, and in the way that language itself can so deeply influence and inspire and motivate us language itself is akin to something magical or what what you would think of when someone casts a spell to get somebody to do something we certainly can inspire uplift change minds deeply describe something and give somebody a sense of how it felt to be there from our own perspective using the art of language and stories so uh, there's a responsibility that comes with this power of language that we now possess and it is something that works on a scale that is akin to what you think of when you think magic you think about how words and ideas and memes and uh, stories travel around the world and they have so much resonance with us they have so much effect on us yep use your samples wisely yep 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 fam yeah yeah let's Especially try and use our sacred, words our speech or and the sacred ones use and all that with a little bit more wisdom and that's what we're learning about here on Meaning Making 101. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. And we invite you to join us on next episode and to like and subscribe to the show if you enjoy and to like and subscribe to John Verveke as well. And keep touch with what this guy's up to. He's been on Lex Friedman, um, uh, Aubrey Marcus's podcast. He's been on uh, Theories of Everything with Kurt Jamungle. Um, He's, he's really starting to reach a lot of these places because he is uh, helping us recognize some of the keys to solving this crisis of culture that we're experiencing right now, this meaning crisis that we are experiencing in our world today. So it's, uh, it's consoling and it's uplifting and very encouraging stuff to run into right now in the midst of this ongoing culture crisis. And I feel very grateful to be able to share with all of you and to have my brother DJ here sharing in this process with me. This has been quite a trek so far. We're 34 episodes through this 50-part lecture series. That was too great for Viveka to be able to teach at any university on the planet. So here it is on YouTube for everybody. For free. For free, yeah. This couldn't be taught for a semester, obviously. I won't say it's entirely free because there is the energy expended that your brain has to use, and your brain uses a lot of energy. So by economically speaking, not free, but pocket economically speaking, free. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) 
Well, and this is like brain exercise too. And when uh, you exercise yeah. the brain more, it actually becomes more agile. It has more endurance, and it can do more. So this is this is also a strengthening conditioning practice for our brains and our hearts' uh, capacity for wisdom. My brain feels like mush. I was yeah. in the sun. I'm trying to quit smoking. I'm like, man, you're doing the thing, man. Yeah. Well, you're at the point yeah. of struggling and feeling it. And as much as you are, then I know that you're you're in the depth of it. <laughs> so good job man i mean like i'm Keep I'm, going. I, I'm angry at this microphone at this point and it's done nothing except be here just be just for being it's yeah. Like, yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah uh, you know the side effects of nicotine withdrawal are actually but i'd rather merciless. i'd rather have agitation my... just doesn't really encapsulate the depth of the of aggravation you can experience oh and i'm a deeply angry nicotine. person just in general and i always have been you know that's like my default mode is anger um, oh, this is kick-ass so, patience training then. Oh, yeah. It to like, I'm just level. remembering all the anger management therapy I've been through. And, like, you know, my, one of my uh, anger management therapists, Keith, just being like, no, Dave, you're angry. <laughs> and it's okay. But you have to feel the anger. I like this guy's Why voice. are you angry? Yeah, that's the best I can do. He's just one of those guys who just kind of talks like, yeah, okay, real calm. Why are you angry? Yeah. You know you're angry, but why are you angry? you tell me man <laughs> trying to stop and look to see why you're angry in the midst of anger uh, is a very hard thing to do uh, well you know i got a lot of reasons to be angry and it's it's uh best not to um what do they call it uh, ruminate if i if i focus on the things that i'm angry it's more of um postulate solutions because that's a lot less frustrating than just working yourself into a hole mm-hmm you know, even if it's like, even if you're angry about something that you have very little control over, just imagining solutions and trying to like think about them, and then yeah, maybe you'll yeah. come across somebody who had the same idea, and hey, now you got a social movement, right? Uh, you know, yeah, because emotions like that are strong energy, so they can be an impetus for yeah that's, doing something else with that energy. That's yeah. what I figured out, uh, you know, after quite a long time of what the anger's for. It's, it's my way of or. It's the gift I have been given to give me impetus to immediately do something that I need to do. Yeah. But it's also the curse of yeah, being inflammatory by nature and trying to hold that back and not be a douche. Mm, yeah. Because sometimes, you know, like I'll say stuff and I'll be like, I didn't mean to sound like that. But it's just that that's the way it came out. Sorry. The point still stands, but I didn't mean to word it like that. I didn't mean to be so gruff about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Or, or just super dry when you're trying not to have any emotions and it just comes out dry. It's like, no, you got to put some back in there. You know, you can't just be like, that dress does not flatter you. You know, you got it's, it's <laughs> you got to add some flavor. It's like, there. okay, Vulcan, yeah. get out of here. Nobody likes the Vulcans, <laughs> and that's why. <laughs> We'd rather have too much emotions like the Klingons than not enough emotions like the Vulcans. It's weird, you know. Emotionless people freak us out, whereas more emotional people is just kind of normal. Yeah, when they're freaking out, yeah. raging out, it's not normal. But like yeah. being a little bit more emotional. But we're used to seeing that swing. Yeah, because humans and that do, might, do that. And that might be you know an, an American thing or just a Western thing. Because you know, like I know in Japan, like emotions are a little less than here, but they still in their own way show them. Like their language is very emotional. You say things differently depending on who you're talking to, what emotion you're having, what you know, like to emphasize the word. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, it hurt isn't just it hurt. It's like it hurt, ha ha ha, it hurt, or it like it hurt, like I'm like taken mm. to the hospital. 
hospital. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so who knows? Uh, weird. Not enough emotion, though. It's one of those things that freaks you out because humans are emotional beings. So if it lacks emotion, then it's a monster. You don't know how to read it. Yeah. You're yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe that's, yeah, that's, why... that's unsettling. That's why the mm-hmm. mask is always unsettling for you when, when, whether it's a ski mask or what, or bag or whatever it is, any yeah. kind of thing that hides the face and hides the emotions mm-hmm. makes it indis- like indescript to, is that the word? Nondescript makes yeah. it hard for us to make out whatever we're looking at is thinking or feeling. Yeah. And so it f- freaks us out. We don't like seeing that. You can't even tell where it's looking in some cases, like, you know, like the slender men or like, um, the idea of like, um, a person in a suit with no face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like no no features on their face you know freak you out mm-hmm. um yeah because you can't tell where it's looking like even if it had a scary face at least that's better than no yeah. face even in the matrix you know it's just agent yeah. smith has just got the shades on yeah. that hides his face but he's always expressionless mm-hmm. as well you can't it's, tell where he's looking you can't tell what he feeling. has one expression it, it is smug Mr. Oh, that's right. Anders. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. just you know, these humans, uh, they're disgusting. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, I forgot uh, about man. that aspect of them. That was really clever. That's a good metaphor. Yeah. Good uh, allegory of the cave story. Yeah. All right, fam. Well, we're going to let y'all go and we're yes. going to wind on down ourselves. Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time, Wednesday, 8 P E S T. Meow.